Have you been to the place where the fireweed grows? The caribou roam and the northern lights glow. Come learn from the people who call this place home. This is Denali 360. Welcome to Denali 360. I am your host, Nova, and today we have the privilege of our guest, Tom Choate. Tom was the first naturalist ranger in Denali National Park in the 1950s and has successfully climbed Denali five or more times. He'll give us that good information here in a second. The last time he climbed Denali, he was 78 years old and he is the oldest person to ever successfully climb Denali. He's a great man. I've had the pleasure of the last day or so getting to know him and chat with him on a variety of expeditions and stories that he's had. And so we look forward to uh, some of the stories that he has to share. So welcome, Tom. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I've been in love with Denali since I first saw it, way back before Alaska was a state. I always knew that I was going to like Alaska from the books and things I read, and then I managed to drive the highway up here uh, in 1954. And so I had some time with the military, some time with construction, some time working with Fish and Wildlife, and then the fourth season I decided I would join the National Park Service, and I tried, and by gosh, I was the most lucky person that existed because they needed a ranger naturalist. The road opened up the Denali Highway and you know they had permanent naturalists and permanent rangers here for a long, long, long time. And then it, during that season, visitors started driving to the park. Pre or previous to that, everybody came on the train and a few rich folks, I suppose, put their car on the flat car and brought it here. But, I was able to be the person that greeted the first car sometime in June of 1957. Oh my gosh. And uh, before that, it was pretty good being a naturalist here because you had a captive audience. <laughs> they had to come on the train and get on the bus from the train and come and listen to me. <laughs> and I would tell them about the climbs of Denali and it got me even more and more interested in climbing it. And I had sort of thought about climbing it in 1955. It wasn't a very practical matter at that stage. So after the first person drove in here, it was the beginning of the rot, as some people say, because they no longer had to listen to the ranger and find out you know, all the things that they were supposed to do. It was the chance to zoom around and do your own thing and maybe go 40 because there was no ranger looking. <laughs> and. Uh, a lot of these folks came from Fairbanks. So they weren't really visitors in the, in, in the sense of new to Alaska. And uh, basically they had driven around to the highway at that time, come in from Paxton down the spine of the Alaska range for 130 rough miles on a very tough old gravel road and then managed to come on in here. So. A lot of these people, they already knew quite a little bit about it. And many years later, they decided that the idea of everybody doing their own thing in the park wasn't particularly good. It was a narrow little dirt road and people were going fast and people were running over squirrels and all of the other little things which you might expect. 
And then they started the bus system and all of that to try and put this thing under control. But during those early days, it was definitely different. I have a funny question. Tell me about the first car that came into the park. Well, that's a little bit hard to remember. You know, I haven't got a very clear picture about that. But I do know that he may or may not have known about climbing on the mountain. Um, some of them knew something about mushing. That was one of the amazing things about being the first ranger naturalist is that I was supposed to know everything and do everything. So I meet the bus that, that came up from the train and take them to this giant model of Denali and say, here's where the sourdoughs went and here's where Judge Wickersham came around and made the first look at that more northerly huge wall that's named after him and so on. And then, of course, shortly thereafter, I would have to zoom over to the dog kennels and pretend I knew something about mushing and hook up all the dogs and show them sundry things. And uh, being the greenhorn, there was always something that didn't quite go right. One day, for example, I had five dogs hooked up and they just loved to run, so they jump in the harness and, and uh, keep jumping and pretty soon I've got six dogs jumping and I'm bringing the leader in there and before I got back to the, 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 the group they must have jumped in unison because they broke the rope and off went the sled without me. <laughs> now this is a summertime sled with wheels so it, you know they accelerate fast but that must have been like a rocket ship because everybody was roaring my audience is like look at this ranger he's chasing the dogs and they've gotten away from him ha 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 and it's like well you know I, I didn't know very much about mushing to start with and I'm supposed to be the expert <laughs> one day I was telling all about how the rangers went from cabin to cabin in the early days and uh, patrolled the park by dog sled in the winter and then afterwards some guy who was standing at, at the back came up to me and said I'm Grant Pearson and I was the superintendent for quite a few years and you know young man it wasn't quite like that <laughs> oh no <laughs> now I don't know what to say <laughs> but then the final part about it was that in the evening you had to zoom down to the hotel which was down at the railroad track and give your evening lecture with slides and all of that thing I even had to put a tie on and pretend that I was a more civilized ranger for mm. the, the, the crowd that lived in the hotel. And I, I diverge here a little bit to the 100th anniversary of the park when people from all over came around and it, it turned out I was the only person from 1957 on the ranger side or even the bus side. But from the people that worked outside the park, a lady came in from Fairbanks and she said, oh, I worked in the hotel in 1957. And I looked at her and I said, you look kind of familiar. She looked at me and we agreed that she's the one that told me, take off your necktie, young man, we're going to go to the dance. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, wow, I danced with you. 65 years ago? Oh my goodness. No, it wasn't quite that long, but anyway, I'm back. Keep coming back to this lovely place. And uh, there are some of the most extraordinary tales from that summer that were just immensely important to my development and my love of the outdoors and climbing mountains and, and other 
natural history sorts of things in particular. I got in my first trouble with bears in the park, for example. Oh my goodness, tell us about that. Well, this isn't supposed to happen because I'm learning about everything you see, so I'm going out with a biologist. Well, this gentleman was a, a bear biologist from the university in Fairbanks, and he was the guy in the park that was supposed to know the most about it. So uh, we went up to Sable Pass and we looked across the way, and here was a, a mother and three cubs, I think, at least two. And we're, she was coming down the valley on the far side, and he said, this is one I need to know more about what they're eating and what they're doing. So let's go over on that hill up above where she is and uh, get up there with our binoculars and see up close what the exact thing is that she's rubbing for. So while we were out of sight of the bear climbing the other side of this little hill, the bear deviated from its track down the valley on the other side and started climbing the hill where we were. So there we came all up there, all prepared for a bear. And I had prepared for days and weeks, you know, you don't run and you do this, that, and the other thing. And came across this bear at, at about 20 feet away. And we, the, the immediate reaction was, I was up in the air, just <laughs> bingo. And I came down facing the other way and it's like, you weren't supposed to do that. And I looked around my shoulder and she was just as scared. Oh. And so she went off with her cubs and I uh, sort of died on the spot. <laughs> and the, uh, the biologist had more or less the same kind of, it's like, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> so I have had good luck with bear encounters and they've been wild and forgiving like that. Of course, if we were between the cub and the bear, it might have been a little different, but I'm not sure whether she heard any sounds as she got to the top, but she almost looked ready, like I was ready for her. But that way too close instant reaction was kind of amazing. Tell us about your first ascent of Denali. Well, I was planning to make an ascent in right after I got loose from the military and I got back to college and the people in Colorado where I was with in Colorado were climbers and we all made a plan to come back up to Alaska and climb Denali but that didn't happen in 1956 and then in 57 we were going to go, go up there and it turned out that the glacier went totally nuts and um, I thought at the time and so did a whole lot of other people that had to do with a big earthquake that we had in 1957 along the Denali Fault and the big glacier that comes off of Denali is the Muldrow and it follows the fault for quite a long way and so it turned out that the geologist that I was out with we were doing some measurements of the glacier and how tall the ice towers were and so forth. And he said that the ice had dropped about 100 feet on the north side so that where you come off of McGonagall Pass trying to get on the Muldrow Glacier for climbing, you had to go down 100 feet that you didn't have to go down to before. And all of that big change had to be settled and that's why the glacier went around the corner and great ice towers and went forward long sorts of distances. Well that was awfully exciting and I will diverge from the mountain a little bit to tell you a story 
the geologists and I went up one weekend and did, did these kind of, you know, how far away it is. And I was basically just looking and listening and awesome because some of the towers of ice were 100 to 150 feet tall. And then the moraine, the rocks that were pushed up by the glacier along the side, the lateral moraines, they were maybe 200 feet high. So we went up there for the night and climbed up there just up above the ice where you could look down on these ice towers just a short way below and watch what was going on. And then, you know, it got to be 11 o'clock and it was starting to get a little darker and 12 o'clock. So we put up our tent and tried to go to sleep, and just about getting my eyes closed. And <laughs> one of the ice towers falls over, and you get this earthquake, and you know a whole moraine's jumping around. And then, okay, let's go back to sleep. <laughs> Wake up again. And somehow during that night, I had these dreams that the glacier was climbing up to the moraine and creeping over my tent and I was buried forever. <laughs> so needless to say, I didn't get any sleep at all, but the surge of the, of the glacier was awesome. But I'm also really mad about it because in 1957, 58, 59, 60, 61, not a human being could set a foot on that glacier. It was so totally broken up into crevasses. In 1962, some people tried to get up, they got part way up the glacier. So our climb of Denali was delayed six years. Oh. And uh, that glacier took a long time to settle and it wasn't even, wasn't very close to settled when we went. So we had to spend all day, every day finding a route. And well, actually not every day, you go out first and you spend a lot of time going around a crevasse or going across one and trying to find a way around another one and back and forth and back and forth so that you might only make about maybe a quarter mile an hour. So it was very slow going back and forth because there were really crevasses everywhere. And then after you finally put in a trail, you mark it with wands and whatnot. And if the weather is okay, you'll take a load of stuff up the up till the end of the trail and make a little camp there and then you have to go back down again. Uh, the standard sort of procedure on climbing Denali even today is two days for every piece of it. So you always climb the mountain twice. You, In order, we know a lot more about altitude sickness, but the standard procedure is never stay as high as you went. And so you go up, you get acclimatized, or rather you don't get acclimatized, but you stimulate the cells being grown. You need more red blood cells and stuff like that. So you go up, you stimulate things, you don't stay. People get sick if they stay up high, come back down, sleep, then carry another load up the next day. If the weather's any good, and if it isn't, who knows? At some point, you'll make a second trip, and then you start over again. Well, we had three, because it, you go up to try and find a way then you take a load up and then you finally take all the load up except that we didn't know what we were doing a lot of the time so we might have camped on a few occasions when we first got up and then we went back for the rest of the gear but it, for a while we were going for sometimes 
two trips or three trips in a day. But it took a little while to get through all of those crevasses, but uh, it actually eventually worked out and we managed to get up on the mountain and we were following the, the route the hard way because we did not want to fly in. We did not want to do things the, the more modern way. A few years earlier, Bradford Washburn in the early part of the 50s discovered the way on the far side of the mountain, which is used today by everybody because he was a great aerial photographer and he could see that there was this little shelf, which we call Windy, Windy Corner now, where you can get between the glaciers on the northwest and the southwest. And that allowed the, you to access the mountain. So he found this good way on the, uh, on the southern side and that's where most people climb today because you can fly in, just use mountain gear. You can start out on skis if you want or snowshoes. And it's logistically much more suitable, but you're starting at 7,000. And so my leader's like, well, you know, all the early climbs, they walked all the way from Anchorage or they walked all the way from Fairbanks or something of that sort. Let's see if we can copy the old timers. And we ended up walking from Kantishna out across all of the bars and over humps of tundra for hour after hour and finally crossed onto the glacier on about the fourth or fifth day. Climbed all the way up the traditional route people had used for 70 years or so from the first, well, maybe not quite that long, but people didn't know that there was a good route there for a while until the sourdoughs showed them back in 1909. But nevertheless, that was always been the, the secret to the Denali until 1950. So for many, many, many years, that was the way, and that's the way we were gonna go, except that we were gonna connect up with this new Washburn route over on the West Buttress. So we had to go pretty light in order to take stuff over the top of the mountain and down the other side. And then we eventually uh, climbed another mountain or two and walked all the way out to Telkitna. And the boss, when he was, uh, measuring it all up and writing the article for the Alpine Journal indicated that we walked over 120 miles and climbed up and down about 40,000 feet and had fallen in 70 crevasses. Phenomenal. How but long of course, did the uh, it didn't take very long before you trusted that the person behind you would catch you. And so eventually you started not worrying about the fact that the place was full of crevasses and be focused on trying to find a way. And if you fell through, if the job was being done properly, you never went in much more than up to your waist. And if there was, uh, you know, slack in the rope from turning a corner or whatever, you, you might be three feet below the top or something pretty easy to get back out again. So we got to the point of not really worrying a lot about it. And that, that helped us to focus and, and get the job done. And that's part of the game when you don't know where you're going and you're in a crevasse field. Nowadays, of course, the, the guides will help to set up a route early on in the season and people can fly in and, and essentially follow what's probably the best route. How many people were in your party? Well, we just had four. And the original person that we had planned to do was unable to go. So the fourth person we picked up wasn't really a mountain climber, but he was a marathoner and wanted to climb the mountain and had been 
those guys had been training on the Seward Marathon, so they were way, way fitter than I was. I was fresh off of writing my thesis and sitting on my tail end in an office for a long period of time, and then I didn't have any money. None of us had any money. So I hitchhiked to Alaska and finally got here in July. Meanwhile, these guys are running up and down out of Seward there, making good time. And uh, I always felt like I was barely able to catch up until up at high altitude. I actually did a little better than our marathoner who turned out to end up being the person who got altitude sick. How many days did it take from Kantishna to Takina? Well, I think we probably were out of almost six weeks. And we did have to have food dropped to us because, you know, you can't readily carry more than a couple of weeks of food. Uh, if you're climbing, as I did when I climbed it as the old goat, I, I knew that I couldn't go very far in a day, so I cooked up uh, a, a set of meals that would allow us to stay out for a month. And then, in fact, the weather was so bad that we needed an extra week to get off of the mountain. So it was a very long trip. But even a smart trip with young folks these days, you should carry three weeks worth of stuff so you know you've got a few days extra to get that mountain if the weather goes bad or if you don't feel well. What lessons did you learn from the first ascent that you used? Well, I learned a whole lot of things, and I think back that we should not have survived because we did some really dumb things that we didn't particularly understand. The most important one was that when this other fella got sick at 15,000, which is about the time I got sick, where you just leave the, the ridge and finally get back onto the upper glacier, it was enough so that the two of us stayed in the tent the first day that an attempt was made. The two more seasoned and more acclimatized people wanted to follow the sourdough 1909 route, which was to go straight up a gully pretty much as soon as you get on the upper glacier, the Harper Glacier. And that was part of the plan was to copy the what these pioneers did, and they did it an amazingly awesome journey. And because that's the only thing you can see from Talkeetna, I mean from Kantishna, the valley out there, Wonder Lake in Kantishna, shows the north face of the mountain, which is absolutely spectacular, maybe the, one of the biggest walls on any mountain anywhere on earth. But it's all you see really is the North Peak. And except for seeing a little tiny white bump on the left-hand side, you wouldn't even know there was another peak behind it. So people are like, oh, these guys didn't climb the summit. And I don't agree with that. I think that they, they should be given credit. They found the whole way up the Muldrow Glacier. They found the whole way up the ridge, which shouldn't be named for Harry Carstens, in my opinion, even though he was a wonderful man. He was the third, not the first person, and those are pioneers are the guys that chopped all the steps up there. They should be have that, that nice ridge named after them. But again, because they climbed the North Peak, the peak that could be seen from where they lived in Kantishna, they aren't given credit for climbing the mountain, but they opened up the whole show and they went up a pretty darn difficult gully that 
Pioneer Gully has not been done very many times. And our two guys didn't make it because they had started right on up from that 15 and it turned out that they were pushing their acclimatizing a wee bit too much because that would take them, you see, from 15 to 19 and a 4,000 foot jump is a little bit drastic. It's much better to go two at a time or even a thousand at a time if you're up really high and you're not acclimatizing well. The other really, really big thing that happened, you see, was that after that attempt, we decided we would go on up the Harper Glacier to the top where it makes the pass to go down the other side. And that meant that this guy who was altitude sick was gonna go up instead of go down. And every physiological and rule that we've learned about altitude sickness is that you don't even let them spend the first night when they show signs of altitude sickness, you get them the heck out of there, or you get them oxygen, or you put them in a bag which changes the pressure so that they can get oxygen. But of course, we didn't have anything like that, and we didn't know very much about it. And he says, oh yeah, I'll be all right, let's go on. You know, he's feeling a little better the next day. So we took him up instead of taking him down, and he should have died, because that's what normally happens if you leave those kind of pulmonary edema or cerebral edema or whatever combination that happened, you make it worse by going up higher. And it would have been a real, real disaster because basically our setup was in those days, you saw the pilot and he dropped some stuff to you. And at best, it's like, I'll see you in three weeks. Wow, there was no satellites, there was no radios, there was no way of contacting anybody if this guy had gotten sick. We were probably about 10 days from getting him off of the mountain. So I don't know how we managed to get through it. We did, and we got him down the other side and he started feeling better. But we did climb from the pass, Denali Pass. We built a special little camp there with big ice walls because it blows a lot of wind through there. And it could easily have caused us a major amount of trouble. But after we made camp there and climbed up onto the North Peak the next day, from that side, we met this party from Harvard who had climbed the big steep Wickersham Wall. These were the first human beings we'd seen in weeks. And it was just the most amazing thing to see somebody coming up from the impossible wall that people can't climb. And then to go to the summit of Denali as a group the next day. So if you allow me to include the North Peak, that gave me three times on top of Denali on that particular trip. Because the one crazy thing about hitting it on three good days was that my leader decided he would get try to get the record for the first person to camp on the top of the mountain, the highest place in North America you could put up a tent. So they went up there with tents and, you know, I went up with the Harvard guys and whatnot right behind and they dug down up on the top in order to make a platform to put up their tent right up on the summit. And as they dug down, they came across a piece of cloth and then they pulled on this cloth and it had Japanese writing on it. And it turns out that less than two weeks earlier, it could have been three weeks, 
a, a, a crowd from Meiji University had set the record by camping out on the top. And as you did in those days, especially in places like Everest, you left your gear. So down there underneath the snow that had blown in was this, so we didn't get that little record. Oh. But you know, we had a very strange encounter with, with the, the, that Japanese party on the way down. Now in the, all of the early climbs, everybody left their extra stuff. And because we were going down off the mountain, we left some stuff on the pass at 18,200. And if you read, read the very exciting book, minus 148 about the winter ascents, you'll find that they got trapped just above where we left a cache of food. And Dave went down and found that cache of food that we had left a couple years earlier. Oh. And it might have saved that expedition. And that was the whole purpose of people leaving stuff for situations just like that, somebody else might need it. So we're going down the other side of the mountain and we hadn't had enough food and we didn't know, oh, there's another lesson learned. Like all Arctic expeditions and Eskimo expeditions and whatnot, and even lowland climbing expeditions, you take pemmican and other fatty foods because you get lots more calories out of fats for the same amount of weight that you're carrying. Well, somebody forgot to tell us that you don't get the energy out of that fat without a lot of extra oxygen. So all of a sudden, about the time you hit 15 or 16,000 feet and you really need some extra calories, you have all this food that you can't eat that might even make you sick. So we were a little on the hungry side and it was a couple of lumps of sugar that got me to the summit the first day. A friend said, take these with you and, and use them when you're up on the top of the mountain. And they were candle mint cakes from England. And all it really was was a big lump of sugar with some mint added to it. But oh boy, was it perfect up there because the sugar, you know, nowadays you can take glucose itself, but whatever the case was, that having that pure sugar was what got me up to the top because the other stuff didn't taste very good. So we're coming down off of the mountain and we're sort of thirsty and hungry and come around. The, and by the way, there was nobody down there on that, that famous route. They'd already left for the season. It was July by the time we got over there. We came down to the windy corner where the rocks are and people leave food there. So we're poking around the food to see what kind of goodies we could find. And here's this box full of what looks like beer cans with Japanese writing on them. It's like beer, oh boy. And we opened one up and it was kerosene fuel for their stove. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, oh no. But anyway, uh, so much for our taking advantage of previous groups. That was the first traverse of east-west of uh, Denali. And uh, we had to sit out a multi-day blizzard after that, but at least we were off the top. This episode is brought to you by Perfect Pup, providing premium training treats for the dogs we love. Perfect Pup Premium Training Treats rewards your canine with the highly nutritious, culinary-grade, USDA-inspected, meaty motivation they deserve, all in a lightweight, no-mess format you'll love. Now that is something your dog will work for. Single ingredient, freeze-dried beef, chicken, turkey, pork, or lamb. Perfect Pup, love your dog better. 
go to www.perfectpup.org. Tell me how many times you have climbed the mountain. Well, having fallen in love with it, I, I kind of made a plan to try to get back every 10 years. And the first time around, 71, two and three, I had already moved overseas and I was setting myself up for larger, more, more mountains, of course. And that was, uh, 1971 was my first climb in the Himalayas. And I dedicated that mountain to the leader of my Denali group because he was unfortunately killed in, with the disaster to the American mountaineering expedition of a year before. And it was a rather profound trip for me, not only my first Himalayan trip, but uh, a few other things which even the Nepal government didn't understand at the time, and that's that we snuck a little bit too close to Tibet. There a lot of political activities going on there between the Americans and the Chinese. Climbers weren't supposed to know about these things, but we discovered some wild country and climbed this peak that was pretty much unclimbed before. There might have been a, a group in the valley working on another peak. So anyway, during the early 70s, I was in Africa and I was climbing in the Himalayas and I didn't get back to Denali, but I did get back in 83, 93, 03, and finally 13 for the 50th year record. Incredible. Tell me about your most recent ascent. Well, that was the one that wasn't supposed to happen because in 2012 I had my hip replaced it wasn't all that bad, actually, considering how I've mistreated my body. All, almost all the joints worked pretty well until after I passed 75, so I can't complain. <laughs> the problem was they said, oh, you gotta go back and do the 50th anniversary. Well, if it hadn't been for all the bad conditions in 55 and 56 and seven and all of that sort of thing, I'd have had that over with already. But now I'm past 75 and they want me to climb up the mountain and my fake hip only allowed me about four hours a day. Well, you're expected to go for about eight hours and carry your gear up a couple thousand feet and set up a new camp. And by that stage, people had pretty much abandoned all of the little camps and they had a rather standard pattern of camps which were fairly far apart and they would certainly take most of the eight hours to haul gear back and forth. <laughs> so we ended up having to set up everything double. That is to say, I'd go out four hours, and then we worked out a plan after two days that worked very well for, for many weeks after that, and that was they would leave me after we probed around an area where it looked good to camp, make sure there weren't any crevasses under the camp, then I would unrope and I would build I would cut snow blocks and build walls to protect the tent and set up the tents and you have a little separate tent that you cook in typically in this situation. So I had all of this set up and I had the stove set up and melting snow and about the time my team showed up again, I had soup and all that ready for them. But you see, they had gone back with the extra four hours and collected some of our junk and brought it along. So even though we were putting the extra camp in, by them doing a little extra double work. It saved my tail end and it helped us to 
to get up there substantially faster. So it was really important to have helpers on that particular trip. Because I carried my load, but I only carried part of it. And they carried some of the extra food and fuel we had to Oh, here's another thing. Some folks have gone on the mountain without sufficient stuff, and it highly annoys me because there are so many climbers up there that they'll come back with extra food, and they have some extra fuel. And sometimes that stuff is left up at 14,000 foot or whatever the case is, or as in the case of a few people I know about, who shall remain anonymous, climbed up onto the mountain with insufficient gear, maybe only taking one load, while everybody else has to take two. And then it's like, okay, uh, you got any spare fuel kind of thing. So they're eating other people's rations and fuel and not carrying it themselves. And I'm coming from this tradition where you had to have your own first aid and find your own way and carry all of your stuff and nothing's gonna be done if you don't do it for yourself. So I was, oh well, I'm getting to, uh, on the, uh, a bit diverted here, but the point is that uh, it worked out remarkably well to do it in little four-hour blocks. How many and were in that fact, party? when I got up a little further uh, and finally got to the 14,000-foot camp, there was a Stanford University batch there. They've been doing, doing studies about altitude up there forever, and they took my blood oxygen and whatnot in there, like, wow, 91, 92, not bad at all. You know, most people come up here, they're not acclimatized well enough, and they're down in the 80s or whatever. Well, it says, of course I am. It took me more than two weeks to get here. <laughs> How many people were in that party of your final ascent? Well, uh, it, it's kind of interesting because uh, I had these two very loyal friends who had been on the 2000 and three expedition and two of them hadn't quite made the summit because they'd been a little more cautious and we went up in, a, in, in rather poor conditions and, and did summit and I've got a, a picture of me coming back into camp after about 19 hours just totally covered in ice because the, the wind was blowing snow that sort of thing but uh, anyway they, they didn't quite make it so they were loyal about hanging on, and we did a lot of expeditions and trips around in Anchorage and areas in the Chugach Mountains and whatnot together. And so they came on and they helped to do the extra hauling of loads for me. But up above 14,000, one of the guys didn't come with us. So for the last taller and more difficult parts from 14 to 15 to 16 to 17, you have to haul stuff up. The higher camp typically is at 17 too, so we had to haul stuff up there. And I basically carried about a third of it, and my partner carried about two thirds of it, and it was just uh, kind of marvelous in a way that I felt better. And I actually, I don't know what happened, but the first day working my way up there, I was out for five hours. And then the second time I was on that face, we were out for six hours. And then when I went all the way up to the high camp, I think I came close to walking for eight hours. And all I can say is that somehow all of those nerves and things which raised heck about arthritis and what have you, I think I probably either froze them or they ran out of oxygen. 
they quit complaining. <laughs> and so it's like, okay, I can keep walking. And to a very large extent, that's why I was able to summit. Things happened that weren't supposed to happen. And there are a whole lot of reasons people can say what happened, but it was awfully meaningful to me to be able to do that and to be able to overcome all of those little handicaps that I thought were going to make it impossible. But you know what? I think some of it's psychology. Because our first attempt on the summit, there was some really extraordinary weather. And there was some lightning up, up real high, and nobody had ever, to my knowledge, known of an electrical storm that high because normally you're way way up above everything and the, the thunderclouds are down at 10,000 feet or so and maybe the tops of them are up to 15 or whatever but not all the way up to, to, to where there's electricity at 20,000 feet and there was this trip and so we were sitting down at the bottom puffing away as I would be doing at 19,000 feet and the fast ones were all up on the top and boom, the lightning and thunder came and it was stunning to hear and apparently substantially worse for those who were on the summit because I saw this guy coming down, taking leaps all by himself. He released himself from his rope or whatever. I don't know what he was coming down, jumping over crevasses and just fleeing like he was totally out of his mind and he got down about we're probably about 1,200 feet lower, maybe 1,000 feet lower where we were. And it's like, whoa, whoa, slow down, what happened? And he turned his head and he pointed, and the back of his head had a hole cinched in his hair and his hat, and he had been hit by a spark from his ice axe back into the back of his head, and it was no wonder he was sort of out of it. Oh, my word. And so... <laughs> Needless to say, nobody finished the climb that day. And I was very disappointed because I had been working up to this for three weeks, or more than that, probably close to four weeks at that point. And I was feeling relatively good about it. And then we headed back down and didn't get back in, probably because of my slow pace till 11 p.m. or midnight or whatever and then all the hotshot climbers are up at three and four especially the Europeans with the, the uh, start in the dark mentality the people in the Alps have so there was no way we could climb the next day which turned out to be a pretty good day but the day after we made our second attempt and things were deteriorating again the weather never lasts more than a half a day or a day or two up on that mountain at that height so it was kind of gray and, and, and blowing it a little bit and not being particularly nice when we got up early enough to traverse. You don't go straight up to the pass like you used to because there's less snow, a lot less snow than there used to be on the mountain. And so there's a traverse which we had to follow, which actually comes out above the pass where the glacier pulls away from the rock. So there's this maybe 18,300 feet or thereabouts. There's a little place where you can shelter. And I, I got into this and I was really pretty exhausted because I couldn't walk as fast as the people behind me wanted me to. And this little narrow pathway is maybe a foot wide, possibly 18 inches. And so you don't really want to pass anybody. So I was going a little too fast and wearing myself out, trying to keep from holding them up. So I pulled into this place and I'm 
feeling pretty exhausted and the clouds are down and the wind is blowing and I'm thinking, oh man, we're not gonna make it, you know, and I got out my thermos, poured myself a cup of hot chocolate or whatever it is and I'm sitting there trying to decide what was going on and, and because it's the 100th anniversary, the mountain is full of famous people, famous extreme skiers, famous writers and all of this sort of thing. And some of them have been passing me on the way up, you know, and we kind of gotten acquainted. So I'm sitting there and around the corner comes the famous John Krakauer who wrote the books on Everest and things like that. And he says, there you are, our old man, you're doing great. You're up here at the pass, you know, keep going. It's like, darn it, I can't quit now. <laughs> and it's all his fault that I plugged the rest of the way up to the summit and, you know, I couldn't see much of anything and it was sort of miserable, but we did make it. And my partner, his big drive was that that was his 50th and for having climbed the 50 high points of the States, all of the states and Denali's always been the tough one to complete that list. So we both got our little thing accomplished that day. Amazing. Tell me about Adolf Murray. Oh, well, I, I told you briefly about the going out with a bear biologist and I did want to hook up with the naturalists as much as I could in the park and Adolf Murray was there. He was, in fact, that summer at Igloo Camp, instead of on the East Fork where the original East Fork wolves were. And I'm not exactly clear which projects he was working on right now after all these years, but I did have a good chance to talk to him and he was kind of a soft-spoken, relatively modest sort of guy. And I had had the good fortune of meeting his more famous and much more um, well-publicized brother, Olaus Murray, and his wife, Margaret, who went on to champion all of the big adventures of uh, wilderness and the establishment of a lot of parks and the Arctic Wildlife Refuge and whatnot. I had a chance to walk in and meet them in their home in Moose, Wyoming in 1957, and Olaus had cancer at the time, but I had a chance to at least get acquainted with them, and, and in fact, at his encouragement, I wrote a few articles for the magazine that he was responsible for calling, called them Living Wilderness. So Olaus was the person who started the Wilderness Society and, and got people interested in the wilderness and, and was much more the public fit feature. They were both good biologists, but Abe was the sort of person behind the scenes who was working biology full time for decades and came out with all of these books like the, the Mammals of Mount McKinley and the Wolves of Mount McKinley and all of this sort of thing. And uh, he was just an amazing man. And I got acquainted with him and his family. And in fact, in 1963, when I was back again, I had the privilege of going out with them back to the States because their son, Jan, was doing graduate work at the school I was doing at, and he was a couple of years behind me. And so he was working on his graduate, and I was working on my graduate degrees and, and uh, having the privilege of running into three generations, as it were, it was pretty an impressive sort of situation. And, and uh, I did do a little bit of biological stuff with him and I did quite a little bit by myself that summer, just discovering interesting things. 
one of the more interesting things was uh, that the park allowed me to go out with a, their movie camera and it was a 16 millimeter uh, Bolex, as I recall, something that was relatively portable to carry around anyway. So I, I tried to take a lot of pictures of birds. I was interested in birds and I ended up doing my doctorate on a bird. So we, I would take pictures of things and one weekend I went up a creek that's not far from Sable Pass and I found this strange looking shorebird that I didn't realize nested in the mountains. Quite a few shorebirds that would normally be found around the oceans and spend their winters and then will actually be nesting up in the tundra. There's four or five of them that nest in the tundra, even uh, throughout Alaska, the Alaska Range, Brooks Range. And this was called, the, the one that I found was called the Wandering Tattler, which is kind of gray and not all of that uh, uh, different in its plumage, except that it made a lot of noise when being disturbed and that's how it got called the Tattler. And I discovered that it was nesting up this creek and there were some little chicks, so I'm taking video pictures of it all. Got back to the headquarters and had the film developed a few weeks later. You know, it took a long time to find out whether your pictures were any good in those days. Naturalist looks at it and says, wow, I didn't know they nested in the park. This is the first record we ever had. And that came back in the 1980s and here's this creek marked on the street on all of the topographic maps, Tatler Creek. It's like, whoa, that must have been my fault. <laughs> Amazing. What other things do you want to share with us? Well, there are many tales I could tell probably, but I, I would really like to say that people have infinite possibilities if they stop letting things interfere with them. I taught a number of courses after I retired to young 15-year-olds, to adults who really kind of wanted to scale mountains or whatever, but they were afraid of it, ice climbing and so forth. And time and again, I find that people completely handicap themselves by looking at a mountain and saying, I could never do that. Or they look at that ridge and say, that looks too steep and difficult for me. And almost all the time there's something that they put in front of themselves that keeps them from achieving what they're perfectly able to do. And that was always been one of my special treats was to be able to see someone who said I can't do it and then there they are they're up there they've done it and it's like yeah I told you so. So you guys out there that are listening, if there's something you've always wanted to do that you thought was too difficult, don't believe it. Believe in yourself. Let somebody show you if you need to. Perfect advice. Thank you, Tom. Denali 360 is a production of Denali 360 LLC. Interviews are edited by Josiah Robinson. Podcast artwork designed by Daniel Karapedian. Theme song written and recorded by Jonathan and Brooke East. Special content and sponsorship recorded by James Rio. I am your host, Nova Cunningham. For more information on Denali Park, Alaska, go to Denali360.com.